Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. On Publishing Radio today, we have Michael Mame with us. He is a sci-fi author and a good online writer friend of, for both me and Scott, and honestly, to writers everywhere. Uh, in addition to all the wise things that you're going to hear from Michael today, the one of the big reasons I really wanted to bring him on is that a lot of the information we talk about in this podcast is out there. It's just it's often you have to pay for it. So there are newsletters, substacks, Patreons, you can subscribe to them, you can get access, but all of that information is often paywalled. And if you were like me, if you were not really able or willing to fork out for that information, your only source of learning about the industry is kind authors who take time out of their day to explain how shit works to you. Uh, Michael Mame was one of those people for me. He explained a ton of things that were going on. He helped me meet new writers. He helped connect me to people. And he helped fundamentally build the kind of the little community that we have going and is definitely one of the reasons this podcast exists today. So we'd like to welcome Michael. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself. That was a little humbling. I am a Michael Mame. You can call me Mike. That's fine. Michael's on my books and the things that my wife calls me when she's mad at me. I am a science fiction author. I have five books out in the world. The, mo the first one was Planet Side. The most recent one was a was uh, The Weight of Command. And then my next book, Generation Ship, comes out in October. I don't I don't want to hold myself out like as an expert, right? Because I know that I'm in a group where our group is mostly debut authors, or it was at the time. I mean. Richard has two books out now, but it was mostly debut authors at the yeah. time that I came in. So, you know, here's me with like four or five books out in the world at the time. And they think I know everything because, you know, because they don't know anything. Um, and it's not, that, you know, but it, it's like it's like being a junior in high school and having a friend who's a senior telling you which teachers are, are, are you know, what to do in each class because they just did it. Which classes you, know, you and, can get an A in. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and and. If you are an author who has had any measure of success, I would encourage you to take new authors and talk to them and be approachable to them. Because when you get there, you'll feel really, really smart and they'll, they'll be very appreciative and you'll have, you know, and a lot of times in our community, everybody is waiting for someone to talk to them. Yes. Yeah. Everybody. Right. Everybody. I mean, have you met a writer that doesn't have imposter syndrome? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe Neil Gaiman. I, who else? I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Somebody somewhere, right? But, Neil Gaiman says he's got it. 
Okay. Well, after yeah. her contract, maybe Lee Bardugo feels good. Um, you know, she, if not, she can sleep on her bed of money and she'll be okay. But uh-huh. I find that at all levels, people are just afraid to talk to people. Um, and yeah. then when you do, you find out one that we all love to talk about writing because we just like to talk about this stuff and share information. I think people also are scared to reach out because I feel like so many people have disappointing experiences with publishing and a lot of people carry this sense of shame about it and I remember it reminds me of um after my daughter was born and I I went used to go to these baby groups and everyone there always seemed like really on top of it and really happy and really buzzy and then about like four or five years down the line when our kids were older one of the women that I knew in those groups started talking about like how she'd really been going through lots of postnatal depression and just generally been completely fucking miserable and we were all like oh yeah we were all feeling that and it, it was like everyone was miserable and no one would say it first and there's a lot of that in writer groups so a lot of people struggling or just unsure of what's going on they don't know what's normal or they feel bad or they feel like their sales are their fault or their career is their fault and nobody will say it first because we're all trying to mm-hmm. Keep up appearances. Right. Well, it's, it's embarrassing. It's yep. embarrassing to come and say, like when I say the misfit soldier undersold, it it's not that bad for me, right? Because I have a successful series and, and well, this must be the blip. It might not be, but it, it's okay. I, I will tell you that, that uh, Scott coming on here and talking about his situation is like one of the gutsiest things that I've seen in publishing because people don't talk about you know, that people don't talk about, hey, I wrote my first book and it failed. They talk about it in private, in private groups all the time. But to come on here and say that is is really something, you know, because it's shining light on something that happens to, I don't know, 60, 70 percent of all midlist debuts. I don't know what the number is. I heard you all throw some numbers out in a previous episode, but I can't source that, you know, more than not. The default position of a midlist author is failure. Right. If you do nothing, if you just turn in the best book you do and do everything you can, more mid-list debut writers are going to fail than succeed. And that is just a fact of life. And it's not your fault. I'm glad we got that line in because you said it earlier and I thought that's really good. <laughs> yeah, you can't cut that part. I mean, that's that's part of my preaching. I should be a motivational speaker. A lot of the people messaging me will say that. They're like, I just can't believe he's out there, like Scott hanging himself to dry and just like, like being honest and being upfront that hanging himself to dry is my phrase. Well, we'll, we'll see. I might get real dry here soon. We'll see. Just to give you some of the history kind of of how we got here and how I got here, I signed my first book deal in early 2017. I signed with my agent, Lisa Rogers, in 2016. We did some edits for a few months on planet side but it was pretty clean and then we went out on sub in june and we finished submission in about seven to eight months total all total and then i signed a two book deal which was a one book deal when they offered so they offered one book seventy five hundred dollars for planet side and overnight my agent turned that into two books uh both at seventy five hundred dollars so fifteen thousand dollars total for two books which was good and i'm going to kind of talk a little bit later about why i thought having a two book deal 
was great. Uh, it wasn't so great that the second book in the deal, which I did not know until I got the draft contract, was for book two in the Planet Side series, and Planet Side was a standalone. So I did have to go figure out how to make that into a series, which turned out to be a really good decision for me because the series has done really well. Planet Side has done very, very well. Okay, I signed a $7,500 deal. That book has made for me in royalties as of today probably $65,000. So eight, nine, between eight and nine times earned out. Um, and it earned out like in five months from the, when it started. Then Space Side came out, earned out in three months. And in between there, we signed a deal for another two book deal for uh, Planet Side 3 and a book to be named later. That book to be named later uh, became The Misfit Soldier, which is my fourth novel. And at that same time, with that negotiation, Harper Collins, I'm with Harper Voyager. Those books are all with Harper Voyager. Harper Voyager did not want one of the books that we offered him, which was The Weight of Command. So uh, my agent got that exempted from that Harper Collins contract and we sold that to audible originals for the same amount of money that we were getting for the harper books just for audio which is nice and then i had to write two books in a year and we'll talk about that when it comes to burning out and why you shouldn't do that or why i shouldn't do that you should do whatever works for you between between my third and fourth book while we were i had written uh, the misfit soldier and turned it in and while we were waiting for that to come out we signed a deal for generationship which is the book i've always wanted to write i dreamed it up in 2018 i was not a good enough writer at the time to write it um and i probably couldn't have sold it i don't i couldn't have written it let alone sold it and uh, i kind of leveled up since then as a writer and i was ready to take it on and i wrote a 4200 word pitch to try to sell it to harper and they bought that and I have signed another deal since then for one book for what will be Planet Side 4, which is tentatively titled Dark Side. I don't know if I'll get to keep that title or not because I think SEO-wise that might not be great. Um, but it's going to have a side in it, and it'll be the fourth Carl Butler book. Um, and that should be out in 2024. And that's what I was working on before I got on here with you guys today. Yeah. And see, that's fantastic because I know, I mean, last episode, we kind of were talking to Richard about his how he went wandering in the unicorn forest, tripped over an agent, and fell into the arms of a book deal and accidentally became a lead title. And I think you can get the impression from listening to this podcast that there is just no life outside of lead titles. But I don't think that's true. At least I hope it's not true. Uh, and I hope that, you know, even if it's harder to kind of build a career in Midlist, it's still doable. Well, and I've, I mean, I've talked, I've, I've talked to a few people who found or created success for themselves, right? Despite signing a small deal or uh, whatever the uh, potentially negative circumstances might have been. Uh, but I mean, you're case with planet side and the success you've seen from planet side seems pretty extraordinary like uh, it, it does happen but i don't i don't hear of it nearly as as much as somebody failing i think honestly i think yeah when you say richard's a unicorn i think his deal is much much more normal than mine honestly i think i think it is much i think more people will sign a lead deal this year than will sign deals like mine and then break out become successful. And I don't want to say break out or be successful. Let's talk. Let, can we talk about what the word success means? First of all, we should absolutely define success yeah, because okay. success is 
yeah. super relative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to lay numbers. Okay. When I signed my deal for Generationship, which was going to be my sixth mm -hmm. book, which will be my sixth book, it's scheduled to come out in October. You can pre-order that anywhere, right? <laughs> the um, I signed a deal uh, for $25,000, two payment advance for $25,000 advance. So two payments at $12,500. I've received one. I should get the next one next week for completion. I don't have to wait. Harper structures their deals for me very, very nicely. We could talk about that if you want to in some in some bit. Two nice. two payment two payment uh, advances are good for authors, um, and that's what we get. And so that's nice. Um, so I got twenty five thousand dollars. So do we consider that success or not? Right, for your sixth book. Well, for me, whose first book was seventy five hundred dollars. When I first published Planet Side, my definition for success for myself was I want to sell enough books that someone will continue paying me to write books. I have since moved that goalpost quite a bit. Um, you know, so $25,000 for that book for me is good. Mm -hmm. That is success. I, in my mind, for my life and what I need, I have been successful. I get to keep writing books, uh, at least two more at least generationship in planet side four after that it's really really debatable and we could talk about that too because that's interesting um but you know if sun Yi is writing her sixth book and she's getting paid twenty five thousand dollars her career has gone completely off the rails right that's not good she would not at this moment nor should she <laughs> consider that to be success because she got more money than that for her first book and i heard you talk about that on the first episode so i don't think we're not i don't i don't think no, we're you're fine to talk money out of line talking about that yeah, yeah you're good so yeah for me it's successful and i get to keep writing books and because my first three books have earned out i actually make a reasonable living at it um, because I'm continuing to make money on those books. That yeah. is the key to your longevity in your career as a mid-list author is having some books that have earned out because you get this great thing where they pay you on the same day every year, right? I will get a check on April 1st, give or take three days from HarperCollins for my all the royalties that I have earned out on my first three books. Now, that's not huge for me, but it's probably $9,000 okay. twice a year. Okay, so that's that's before any deals that I sign, any contracts that I fulfill just every year for until my book stops selling. But we sell enough copies to make about $9,000 every six months for me. So I'll get about that, yeah. Has that stayed pretty constant, especially for the planet side? books that you know have have been yeah. out for some time has has that uh but yearly sum yearly it, it has same. stayed about the same it bounces up and down a lot based on a book going on sale so if they put planet side on sale you'll watch you can almost watch the ripple in my sales planet side will explode because of the sale and then the other two books will trend upward because a certain percentage of the people who read planet side are going to continue on to read space side and then a larger percentage of who read space side will continue on to read colony side. Um, and unfortunately not a lot of that traffic moves over to my other books. Um, so writing outside of a series, which you should bring someone smarter than me yeah. on to talk about that. Cause that's, it happens a lot, right? Where can you carry over your audience from a series to another yeah. series or another book or another genre? Um, and there are people who can, the received wisdom that we that I had been told by my agent, which I know publishing is working very rough figures, but she said uh, they said it was something like, when you write 
three books, you can move to another series and take some year of readership. When you write five, you can move to another subgenre or genre and take some of them. I don't know if that's just, I don't know how rough that is. I don't know the research for I, it. Well, that's exactly what I've done. So we'll see if she's <laughs> right or wrong, right? I wrote a three, I wrote a three book series and then went over and wrote two standalones in the same subgenre. And then my sixth book will be in a new subgenre. Right, Generation Ship is not military science fiction. It is uh, straight science fiction. You call it space opera, I guess. You know, so so we'll see. Mm -hmm. I, we're following the received wisdom so far. Uh, that wisdom has not held true. People have not come from the Planet Side series to the Misfit Soldier, and the Misfit Soldier is, is to be to be frank, is underperformed, um, and that has put some pressure on my career. My entire deal is predicated on that that prediction being wrong because I'm moving genre every book because I'm I'm on a three book standalone contract and I've moved from contemporary urban fantasy to historical literary fantasy, you know, between book one and book two and God knows what the third one will be. So <laughs> um, I hope it's not too true. Basically, I hope it's not a universal law, but there, there are very few universal rules in publishing, I think. I think you're in a different spot because of your position on the list, right? Because because you're going to do, we hope, right? We don't know. Um, we hope. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you got the marketing on book one, um, mm -hmm. and we kind of hope you get it on book two. <laughs> and you, it could be that you're looking for a completely different audience. You don't necessarily have to bring your people with you. You know, if you might find new people yeah. who, who might go backwards and find your other book based on, hey, they like the genre that you're gonna write in with book two, so it's almost like a second debut, which is horrifying, um, you know, it's terrifying, but it's also, there's a whole ton of potential there, you know, so it could go either it's, way. It terrifies me less than being in a series because if you launch a series and it doesn't work, then the famous publishing death spiral kicks in where the read-through is just dropping with every book and you're chained to that series until you finish it. Scott's nodding vehemently on camera. <laughs> you're, you're describing... Uh... No, that is true, because if book, if book one doesn't sell, writing book two is, I don't want to say pointless, because book two will sell copies of Soul destroying? One. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you just know that you're not likely to break out with it yeah. from there, right? For yeah. me, it's mm -hmm. slightly different because Planet Side is not really a series. It's more of a serial. Mm. Um, That's cool. You could you could read book three without having read book one and two. Right. Um, and it's people, written that way. People, people say that them. a lot. Like yeah. authors seems seem to say that a lot, but I don't think readers trust that. <laughs> well, they don't have they don't have to trust it. But, but yeah, yeah. At the end of Space Side, you are not required to go on to read Colony Side to get the story. Yeah, Each book sense. is its own story, right? Dark cool. Side is going to be a book with a beginning, middle, and end. Yes, some of the characters come back from... It's more like watching season four of a show. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's, that totally makes sense. And if there's any Hollywood people listening, it's written like seasons of a show. You could come <laughs> by it. It would be great. I'll make option, you a deal on all four of them. The option is available is what I'm uh, is. gathering here. It is. Okay. So, Mike, I, I have a, a specific question. Feel free to uh, answer it or not. But you mentioned both that Planet Side exceeded expectations, obviously, and mm -hmm. that Misfit Soldier didn't, right? Yeah. Uh, that it and maybe Weight of Command, which I loved, by the way. Weight of Command was fantastic. Thanks. Um, yeah. 
thank you for uh, giving me access to an early listen. That was the highlight of my cross-country drive this past summer. What, I mean, do you have any takeaways that that you have, that you feel good about with respect to why Planetside did well and why the Weight of Command didn't, given that they're on pretty similar deals with the same publisher, same editor, etc. Is there anything to learn there, or is it just kind of random chance? Let's not talk about the Weight of Command in this. Let's talk about The Misfit Soldier. The Weight of the Command was with Audible. Uh, oh, the Misfit sure. Soldier was the fourth Harper book Good point. on the second contract. So Planetside and Spaceside were on one deal, $7,500 each. And then we signed the second deal before Spaceside came out. So Planetside was quite successful, and, and they knew it then. And they were willing to talk offer on two more books right then. And they asked for Planetside 3 and Planetside 4. Because Planetside was doing well, I had some leverage. And we could talk about when you have leverage and when you don't. Because there's very few points in your career where you have leverage. And when you do have it, it's a really good idea to take advantage of it. Because you won't have it forever. I don't have it anymore. Um, so I had it then and I was able to say, no, I'm not going to write Planet Side 4. I'm artistically I'm just burnt out on those characters. I don't feel it. You know, so I would like to. And we signed a contract for Planet Side 3, which became Colony Side and a book to be named later. And that book later became The Misfit Soldier. Um, I pitched the weight of command to them to be that book. And they said no. And then so I pitched my other book, which was The Misfit Soldier. And they said, yep, that's it. So I wrote that. And those two books were $15,000 advances each. So a $30,000 for two books. Um, and so the expectation on those was higher, right? Because the money is higher. The expectation, no one is ever going to tell you or no one has ever told me. I'll be very accurate here. No one has ever told me that these are your expectations. You have met them. You've exceeded them. You've not. That's just me doing math, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. I can look at mm -hmm. how much money Harper has made on Planetside, and I know that they're good with that, right? Because if I've made $65,000 on it, they've made three times that, right? <laughs> that means they've made $200,000 because I get 25% of receipts. So less their costs for, for, you know, their sunk costs, producing the audio, editing, all the stuff that they pay for, the cover, they've they've made about $200,000 on that book. Okay, for a book that they initially invested in me, $7,500. That's a good deal for them. There's no way around that. We can all see that math and why it works for them. This was yeah. the thing that scared me the most when I initially signed my deal and, and after the euphoria died down, I was like, wait, how many copies do I need to sell to make this money back? Um, but it wasn't as yeah. bad as I thought. I think with my really shit maths, I kind of worked out that it was maybe in the region of 35 to 40 K copies where they would start to feel okay, assuming hardcover prices. Uh, obviously that gets very dicey when you throw an audio and paperback and discounts and all kinds of stuff, but it's, it's daunting, I guess. And it's weird as well that no one says we need to sell these many copies and they don't have an exact number. I mean, I remember reading Courtney mom's book where she, she interviews all these editors and the editors were like, well, we start to feel quite good if, you know, a, a title sells 15,000 in hardcover. It's like, do you, what, what does that mean? You feel good. Like, is that, are you actually in the red and the black? Like, uh, why doesn't anyone have a number? They must know. Someone must know. I, some, even if somebody not knows, but if they do, they're either, 
it's either not people I talk to or the people I talk to are being disingenuous, which I don't believe the second one. So I just don't think, you know, on the editor side, look, we know what, like, again, with Planet Side, we know it's good, right? I mean, once you go over a line that's, you know, we're so far past the line with that book. But again, it's not really making them that much money. It's making them money relative on a percentage basis, right? But there's a very good chance that your book will make more for your publisher before you earn out your advance than my book makes after I've earned it out. Because at the end of the day, I've only sold 65,000 copies or whatever, some somewhere in that range, right? And and that's and those are paperback. I don't I didn't have a hardcover. Yeah. Right, so we're not making that two dollars something advance uh, royalty per book. My paperbacks were sold cheap; they were mass market. They were seven ninety nine, which helped me a lot. I think, you know, mm. it didn't help me on the number side for sure, on the money side. But asking people to take a chance on a debut author for twenty eight dollars is a lot different than asking someone to take a chance on a debut author for eight dollars. You know, so I feel like that really helped me find an audience that you yeah. could buy my, you could go get my ebook for six ninety nine, five ninety nine now I think, right? So, yeah, you've never read me, but you heard it was good, and it's only eight bucks, you know. And I think psychologically, <laughs> yes. being below ten bucks is a thing, you know. Being below yes, twenty bucks is, is another thing, right? I don't think there's any difference between twelve ninety nine and seventeen ninety nine mentally, but yeah. there's a big difference no. between ten and twenty. Which is ridiculous. I mean, but that's how our brains work, and that's why they price things in your store at yeah. eight ninety nine instead of nine dollars. Now, yeah, I don't. Sorry, go on. No, after you, Sunny. Uh, and now I was just gonna say that I really think editors themselves don't know. Like the the money people are different from the editorial teams, and they're already effectively project managers who have to oversee marketing, publicity, cover, editing, production, acquisition, blurbs. Yep. <laughs> Blurbs, too much. They yeah. do a lot. Yeah, they do too well, much. Do you know, lot. and I think, I think they know. Okay, if an editor's been in the game for a minute, they certainly know when their boss is happy with them and when their boss is not happy with them. Yeah. Yes. If they do, they know the exact copy number of copies that go. No, but do they have a range where they think, okay, here's this is what's really bad, this is what's okay. And this is where we get good, and this is where I'm a superstar. Yeah, I, yeah. they have to, if yeah. they if they've done any number of books. Yeah, I mean they they can they have a better guess than we do. Oh yeah, I remembered two things I wanted to say. Sorry, the the first was that um, I, I've struggled to explain before that concept you're just talking about of of not a lot of money, like to a corporation, making a couple hundred thousand dollars is not a lot of money and that sounds weird but it's really difficult you know when you're mid-list and somewhere up there the big numbers person is crunching and going we think this book will only make us 150 grand that's not worth our time that's so weird to hear for people because and I think this is why like indies come in and and they can actually make money that's sustainable because what's sustainable for one person is different for what a corporation thinks is sustainable that the big publishers are in it for the twilights the Mm -hmm the books that yeah. sell 10 million copies they are but i don't want to um, be too negative about that i think no, if you if, no. if, if an editor today knew that this book was going to make hundred and fifty thousand dollars for oh, the yeah. corporation they would sign that deal it's the yes. risk that comes with it right do we yeah. want to invest yes. and also it's the lack of of upside 
right? If I'm capped at $150,000 and you know that I'm not going to go beyond that, aren't you better off taking a chance at the next big thing that might sell a million? You know, it might be the next Lee Bardugo. Who knows? The other thing I learned at launch is something my agent told me, which is that they generally look for fantasy debuts to sell between 300 and 1,000 or something like that on the, the first week of sales. So if you kind of earn that bracket, they're generally happy. And if you're above that, you're doing well. Uh, I mean, obviously that includes pre-orders and things. And that was the first time I'd heard any kind of concrete figure. And if anyone has better data than that, feel free to correct yeah. me. I'm sure we get things wrong on the show, but that's because we have to scrabble in the dark for, for numbers. <laughs> that's the first time I've actually heard that. I, I don't, no one ever told yeah. me what, to, what I should do. Um, you know, earning out in well, five months, first... I didn't need anyone to tell me that yeah. was good. I had, I had a pretty good idea. Yeah, I think my first week we were over 2K yeah. and I said to Naomi, is that good? It's like, that's lower than my UK figures. And she, and she said, yeah, that's fine. You're, that's, that's really good for what you want. I was like, all right. <laughs> the other I thing guess. that's gone on with Planetside um, is that it didn't really sell that much the first year. I mean, I think, mm. you know, that's it earned out. It certainly earned out. I think it probably, I probably had made 20,000. But then it sold the same number the next year, which doesn't okay. happen, right? Yeah, it doesn't really happen. Um, and then it sold the same amount the third year, and then it's selling about the same amount this year. It just keeps. So oh. when when Space Side came out, Planet Side Planet Side had dipped, and we were not selling hardly at all. You know, we had kind of capped out around twenty thousand. Then Space Side came out, and then Planet Side took back off again and 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 hit, you know, top thousand in category in in in. Uh, on Audible, which is where I sell most of my copies. That's the other thing that's really unique about my deal, right? 60% of the money that Planetside has made has been on audio. Okay. Which is high. That's extremely high, right? Um, I, I don't know how high. It's just really high. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and that's part of the luck that I talk about with Planetside mm. um, and how how... Because you're going to ask me, how do you do this? And I'm going to say, well, you get lucky. My publisher and I together made a couple of really good decisions. Um, we had some really good luck with timing. And, and most of it was, and it's a good book. I mean, and those things came together in a unique concoction of things that made it work. And if I could replicate it. I would be doing that for other people, and I can't replicate it, and and I don't know that you can. So chasing it is. But I will talk about the things that I do do that you know to try to give yourself the best shot. I think that's what you know. That's what this is going. That's going to be my theme throughout this. Is you can't control anything. Yes. Except the book that you write, and even then you may not be able to control it because your editor might have thoughts on how long that book wants to be, and you may disagree with them. You know, or they may they may want. A love triangle, and, and you don't. And you know those are negotiations that you're going to have. Um, that one you can win. Um, you know you might want a certain certain audio narrator, and your publisher may not want to pay for that. I had that very specifically with the Misfit Soldier, and that's one of the reasons that it didn't do as well because the you narrator might want audio. Been, what's that? I was going to say you might want audio yeah. full stop. Like yeah, you might not get your audio book right. Um, you might not get your audio book, but you can do stuff about that too. Because in my first contract, I wanted an audio book so bad in my first contract. 
because I was an early adopter of audiobooks. Okay, I was listening to audiobooks and the inspiration for me to write Planet Side was listening to a guy named R.C. Bray, who is my narrator for Planet Side. I was listening to him read The Martian. And I had his voice in my head as Carl Butler as I was writing it, because I was listening to that book at the same time I was writing. And that was the voice that was Carl Butler's voice in my head. And I really, really wanted one, I wanted to have an audiobook, And two, I wanted R.C. Bray to narrate it. Okay, I had no control over the second one, but I'm gonna tell you what I did to make that happen. The first one, I told my agent, I will not sign a deal that gives away audio rights unless they promise they're gonna use them. Okay, I want an audiobook. And so the one thing that she dug in on on the contract was a reversion clause on the audiobook. So that if Harper Voyager did not do an audio within 12 weeks of release of the book, that we got the rights back. We never exercised that. And the reason that Harper was more than willing to give us that deal is because they had intended all along to make the audiobook. So it was basically giving us something that was, had zero value to them because you know they were going to, but at the time you don't know, right? No, so if you're, if you're a new yourself. author, ask your agent to get your reversion clause on your audiobook. That's a very specific doable thing that they can pursue. It doesn't mean that that publisher is gonna say yes, but you get to pick the one or two things in your contract that you want to fight for. The pay is the pay. Okay, you can try to negotiate the money and your agent's going to do that regardless because everyone knows that that's the most important thing. But then there's one or two things in your contract that you are going to want and it's you just need to communicate with your agent and make it as clear as possible and a good agent is going to work to get you the things that matter to you. But going back to this audio question, and specifically that question of what went right with planet side yeah. versus not so right with misfit soldier and you mentioned that you believe that that narrator matchup was a big deal and that didn't happen on the misfit soldier and this has a follow-up question but do you think that that you know that dynamic of having just really the the perfect narrator and the and a, a really good production for Planet Side Audio was one of the big differences between uh, the outcomes there, of those There are two a books. few things. There are a few factors there. Um, one is the timing. Um, the second is the narrator. So R.C. Bray um, had done The Martian and everybody, every, that is like a lot of science fiction fans' first audiobook. Hmm. And I don't know why, but just the timing in of when audio yeah. started to kind of explode, right? The other thing was when when planet side came out on audible if you went to scan if you searched military sci-fi books there were 800 if you go today there's 4000 okay so there's a significant difference in what's available to the audience yeah. um and so it took a lot less to become number 1 you know because because you were it was easier to be found um and follow that with R.C. Bray yeah. was doing the most popular military science fiction book series of our generation. He was doing the Expeditionary Force by Craig Allenson, right? The Craig Allenson's military sci-fi yeah. books regularly go to number one on Audible. And I don't mean number one in military sci-fi. I don't mean number one in sci-fi. I mean, he goes past Michelle Obama, number one overall on all of Audible when those books come out. Okay, so in R.C. Bray as his narrator, 
and then he more than any other narrator and there are a few narrators like this who have their own fans and their fans will take chances on new books that they narrate yeah um you know any real audio book fan wanna... has their favorite i'm sorry go ahead no, no, no. That's I was really just going to say I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but I do think that my choice of narrator, because I did have a choice, damaged my American sales or at least my American rating quite significantly. Um, I know that I have a not great rating on Audible for that. And I have no regrets for it because essentially my book was set in the north of England. It features very regional accents. I picked a narrator who has a regional accent, which is something a lot of American listeners aren't used to hearing. And boy, they did not like her. A lot of complaints, like, oh, we can't understand her. She sounds such a heavy accent, this, that, and the other. And and I don't know. It's just something to bear in mind, I guess, for, for, for writers who are outside the States when you're looking at accents. If that bothers you, think twice, maybe. Um, listening to Mike, I think it probably did have an even bigger impact than I thought. In my case, I think it would be great if they could all bottle their tears and send them to me to drink because I don't give a fuck. <laughs> the reason why her accent's unfamiliar is why I wanted that accent there. So I don't care. They can all be sad. <laughs> well, and some of that, right? We, we're gonna. We, I know at some point we're gonna get to talking about the commercial versus the artistic. And sometimes you're gonna pick one, and sometimes yeah. you're gonna pick the other. And and you know, they're not always gonna yeah. line up. Sometimes you're gonna do something knowing that it's what yeah. you want to do artistically and this it comes with book choice it comes with narrator choice which people probably don't think about but there are commercial aspects mm -hmm. to narrators and honestly i was not thinking about that at the time that i did it i just had his voice in my head and it was the perfect voice and it turned out that all this other stuff happened to be true and i've studied you know there there are certain narrators that add value and add sales to your audio in certain genres Right. And if you if you're a fantasy fan, you've heard the same narrators over and over again. If you listen on audio. Right. You've heard Joe Jameson over and over again because he does a lot of fantasy books. You've heard, you know, who, somebody with a ubiquitous British accent because fantasy books want British accents for whatever reason. And because we've all been, been good. Why did everyone on Game of Thrones speak with an English accent? I don't know, because we think th about fantasy and we think, well, English, England's old. That must be that must be it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, seen Between Two Ferns, but there's a scene where Zach Galifianakis is ask asking um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I saw that. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he thinks that uh, people would realize that he's a shitty actor if he didn't have that accent. Um, that was great. <laughs> might be a little bit of that. You can't can't really tell, uh, you know, certain nuances that you might be able to pick up on if it's not uh, an accent you're used to. Um, that's really interesting though, right? And, and you both know this, but I'm going through uh, trying to shop audio rights and may end up doing it myself. Uh, if that doesn't go well, may not. Um, but that I, I'm embarrassed to say that the potential aspect of narrators bringing an audience with them didn't, hadn't really registered to me as something that could be that significant and maybe you know maybe it was way back in the day of 2018 a, a more significant factor than it is now now that there are tons of audiobooks and popular mm. narrators probably have tons of titles under their belt 
Um, but that's really interesting, and that's that's something I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. Yeah, so let's <laughs> fast forward to the Misfit Soldier to, to, to go back to your question that you asked me, right? What was different yeah, about yeah. the Misfit Soldier? So mm-hmm. so the difference was, and, and um, R.C. Bray was online to do that book because it's still military sci-fi, and I think it would have done quite well uh, if he had, but his price went up because he was bringing value and he had recognized his value and he was in high and and the audio book producing community read indies who who see these things way before publishers do right yeah because they're faster and they and that's one of the things about the indie market if there is a trend or there is something that is working there is an indie author who is hustling to get it and I love that about them and I also hate it because it kills me because they can beat me because I'm dealing with a publisher um, and so you know, his price had gone up by more than threefold per per produced hour. So audiobook wow. audiobook uh, narrators get paid per produced hour. Okay, um, and his price had more than tripled. And Harper wasn't willing to pay it. Um, they now realize their mistake. I would say no one's told me that, but given that they have signed him on to do Planet Side Four, my guess is they understand now that that makes a difference. But at the time, they didn't know that it made. I knew it was going to make a difference, but I couldn't make the publisher understand that it was going to make a difference. I fought to get my narrator. They said, no, here's your four. Pick one of them. I said, what about this other guy? They said, no, here's your four. Pick one of them. So I picked the guy artistically who I thought fit the story very well. He did a very good job with it. And it has sold my my sales for Misfit Soldier are more in line with normal books in that genre, which is about, you know, probably 40 percent on the paperback, 30 percent audio, 30 percent ebook, which is pretty normal for military sci fi that has paperbacks in a store. Like it's not it's not crazy out of line like Planet Side, where there's just a big weight to the. the audiobook. Um, so in that book in its first five months, and I only have five months worth of data, four months worth of data on it, came out on February 22nd of last year. So I have one royalty statement. I'll get another one in like two weeks. And so I'll tell you two, I won't tell the world, um, but I'll tell you two what it looks like after that. Um, but it's not selling real well. Um, so out of its $15,000 advance in the first you know, four months, it did 5,000. So not horrible. Um, for a paperback, but not nearly at the level that they were hoping. Uh, it changed things for me in my relationship with the publisher and how much leverage I had. Now, I did something really, really smart. Um, I negotiated the contract for Generationship before Misfit Soldier hit shelves because I saw the poss and I did it on purpose. Okay, I did it on purpose yeah. because I saw the possibility of Misfit Soldier not doing well. And I knew that that would impact my career. So I wanted to have a book under contract before that happened. Um, and so we went out, you know, with, and I wrote a big pitch for uh, Generation Ship um, and we were able to sell that. Um, and we had closed that deal before they got numbers on Misfit Soldier. Now, is it is it typical to be able to pitch and sell on that kind of timeline, meaning before, you know, a, a second book has even hit shelves? Because I know, you know, we've we've talked to other authors in our friend group um, who have pitched early on purpose and they've kind of been stonewalled. Right. And they've been told to, yeah, well, let's let's wait and see. Uh, I'm guessing you've seen 
more authors than just yourself and that one other uh, go through that. How, how common do you think that is? You two know me. I, I know a lot of people. Um, I talk to a lot of folks about a lot of different things in publishing. That's part of the yep. benefit of... <laughs> I, I am very, very open about things. I have literally published my exact publishing income for 2022 on my website, uh, michaelmame.com, if anyone wants to check that out. But it has my exact income from 2022. And when you share stuff, people are more willing to share stuff back to you, right? So I hear things and... Yeah, so I have a pretty good idea of that it's it comes down to when do you have leverage and when do you not? Okay? And you mostly don't. And if your book is in that middle ground, right, where you're not sure if it's doing real well or it's not doing real well, it it you may not have a whole lot of leverage, right? I had a bunch with Planetside doing as well as it did, um, and them wanting planet side three um you know at that point I, I had quite a bit of leverage because they wanted to continue the series it was profitable for them um, and it was continuing to build and it's still continuing to sell the generation ship they they couldn't not take the deal okay and the reason they couldn't not take it at that point because they did not know that misfit soldier was going to do that and i don't think they were as worried about it as i was because I understand your publisher is not all knowing, right? There gets to be points in time in all negotiations in publishing where there's parity of information, right? Book three what? in a ongoing series, everybody knows how much that book is worth. Okay, your agent knows, your editor knows, and they have that same information. So the negotiation is really a formality. That book is worth X dollars, okay? Because, because it's numbers, but with Misfit Soldier, they had not yet realized that the narrator was gonna have that much of an effect on the book. And I already knew that it would. So I was in a hurry to get a deal done on Generation Ship beforehand, and they were not adverse to that because everything that they had seen was that, hey, this book will probably do okay. You know, it'll probably continue him along his trend. He's had an upward trend, he continues to sell. Let's do this. And there's risk for them, right? Because if Misfit Soldier blew up when it came out, now they're paying more for generation ship after the fact. So so we're we're both doing give and take, right? There's two factors. There's the risk and there's yeah. there's the um there's the leverage. And who has each one? Mm. We're both sharing the risk. Now I took a smaller deal on books three and four than I probably had to, because we went early. If I had waited until Spaceside came out and Planetside kept going before I signed the deal for Colony Side and Misfit Soldier, we probably would have got more per book because they were they were objectively worth more. I mean, Colony Side was objectively worth more than the $15,000 I got for it because it sold through $15,000 worth of advance in five months, right? And there was not really any doubt that it was going to do that by the time we got to it. But when I was signing the deal before Spaceside came out, we didn't know for sure. So I was taking some risk on my side by taking a smaller amount and they were taking some risk on their side by offering and paying me early, you know, but for me, it was artistic. I wanted, and, and I wanted Colony Side to come out one year after Spaceside, not two. 
So if we waited to negotiate the deal, then there's a gap of a year. And I did not want that in my trilogy because I had seen the momentum or I hadn't seen it yet, but 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 I had seen it in other people, the momentum that you can build by getting a book out every year as opposed to every two years. Um, plus, I'm I'm 54 years old. I only got X number of years left to write, you know, and one book a year for me is 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 good to, to do as opposed you know, if I take three three years to do a book. I take three years to do a book. <laughs> well, uh, you do different kinds of books, though. Your book is so fine. good. Don't 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 run yourself down. I mean, we all do. I'm I'm currently of the belief that that no one is going to like my next book that comes out, um, even though people have told me it's good. I have already uh, liked it and blurbed it. <laughs> I know that. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Like there, there are days where you feel really, really good about what you do, and then there are days where you absolutely yeah. Don't. Yep, I do know. <laughs> oh, do we want to talk about what you negotiate? So yeah, so mm -hmm. we've been, we've been talking about these contracts, right? Um, and it's important the the thing that you figure out in your second contract that you didn't know in your first contract was where you can get stuff. Okay. Yep. And now we're all going to say we want we want to put the marketing right into the contract. You're not getting that. Not as a midlister. I'm sorry. That's just not. I'm not saying don't ask for it. Go ahead. Have at it. But I don't think that's realistic and it's almost unenforceable. Yeah. Right. Because what are they going to say? Unless they say something specific. Like we're going to spend X dollars on a Facebook ad or whatever. Then how do you even enforce it? Yeah. You probably don't. Um what you can get is things that are important. To me, delivery date is the most important thing mm. because I don't want to kill myself to turn out this next book, especially when you're paying me $15,000 for it. Yep. Right. If you want to crank it up to 100,000, we can set it on your schedule. If we're going to do it for 15,000, we're going to do it for $25,000. I will work with you on schedule, but I am going to give you a date that I feel good about. Mm -hmm. And I feel good about my ability to turn that book out and make it something that I want it to be a good, the best book I can make. And I want to have the time and space to do that the way that I want. Because uh, now just I wondered about that because my publishers pushed very hard for specific delivery dates, which we have blown past by a year and a half <laughs> for book two. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did not deliver on time and no one's mentioned it or, or given a shit. I don't know if that's because, because the position I'm in yeah. relatively or are they just, well, and then why, so why, if they're not going to, if they're not going to do anything about it, why are they pushing for that? And then go, you know, I don't understand why they're pushing for that in the negotiation. I don't either. I don't either. They really wanted yeah. it pinned down. Oh, I was just going to say, I've spent a lot of time, you know, managing projects and vendor relationships and things and that's essentially what we are to them right we're a vendor um, of sorts and sometimes you really do just have to pick a due date right and you have to pick a go live date whether yes. it's realistic or not and you know that that's going to change you don't really care if that changes sometimes it's a relief if it changes on the other end but i think some of that is really just them spitting in the wind and seeing where it lands and that's the most important thing in this is knowing what you want Right. I know, you know, I know what I want my non-compete to look like. That's another place where in your second contract, your first contract non-compete is probably bad. Unless you were, you know, an auction 
and you could play them off of each other, I guess. Um, but you can work your non-compete because your publisher has some room to move on that in future books. So this idea of you can't publish anything else for 24 months, I've seen some horrible non-competes out there. Just don't sign that. Don't sign anything that gives someone control over you for 24 months, you know, for any book in your genre, right? My non-compete on my last contract is for direct sequels to books I've already published with Harper. Those are the only things that I can't take anywhere else. And it seems like, it seems like a lot of, a lot of agents are, are getting or have gotten uh, the standard non-compete clauses from what I've seen in my own contract and a few others that have floated around the group. seems like they've gotten to the point of being pretty toothless and unenforceable anyway, and they're kind of there to just scare the author into delivering as fast as possible. Maybe. Um, we could talk. And then there's options also. There's non-competes and there's options. The one thing that we couldn't get off of this time was my publisher really wanted to add novellas into my non-compete, um, which is horrible for the publisher. And David, if you're listening to this, I still think that's horrible and it's not fair, but I didn't care because I'm not writing a novella. So we accepted it because I don't care and it yeah. doesn't affect me in any way. It does affect other authors and, and my agent and I were very worried about us being like the standard bearer for accepting this. And now it becomes, you know, acceptable for anybody else who does want to do that. Yeah. Um, but for us, it just didn't matter that much. Um, but I still think it's a horrible clause, um, you know, for for authors. But again, because I didn't want to do it, why should I fight about it? I don't I don't care. You're welcome yeah. to put that in the contract. You might as well say that I'm not going to drink tea with my breakfast because I'm not going to drink tea with my breakfast. So I don't care. Yeah. And I, I think one of the big points that uh, I'm getting at least, and I think a lot of other up and coming writers should get from a lot of these things you're saying, whether it's the definition of success or picking and choosing the battles you want to fight with your contract is going into the publishing journey or whatever you want to call it to make yourself feel better. It's very important to know what you want up front in terms of success in terms of uh, how much time can you realistically put toward this and, and how quick are you at writing, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing your your own life and process and staying true to that is much more important than keeping a publisher happy or at the very least more important than uh, agreeing to everything that the <laughs> publisher puts on paper at the very first, right? I think so. I Now, to, to cut yourself some slack as a debut author, I didn't know any of this. I didn't do any of this with my first contract. But yes, your publisher is not going to be mad if you push back on a contract. Your your big five publisher is not going to be mad if your agent is pushing for other things. It may slow your contract down, which, by the way, slows your money down. Because until you get all those details, my first contract took 11 months before I signed it. And if you are counting on that money, then and you tell your agent, get this done as fast as possible, you're giving up your ability to fight on some of that stuff. So there's some privilege in here. And that, first of all, my first deal was for $7,500 per book. It wasn't that much money, you know? I ha And I was working at the time. I was still in the army at the time we were doing that deal. I was still getting a full paycheck. I didn't have to have, $7,500 did not materially change my life that year. So I could take, I could tell my agent, hey, take all your time you need. But you may not. You may want to sign it right away because you may that money might be your rent money. Um, so everyone's in a different situation. And the second thing is I didn't know any of this. And I didn't know my own 
I didn't know what I could do. So the first year I was a, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. The first year I was a full-time author, I was, um, I was quitting my uh, job as a high school English teacher to write full-time. And that was the year that Harper had rejected uh, The Way to Command. And so we were going to sell it to, we sold it to Audible, and I was going to get two books out in a year. And I did, just not the year that I thought. Um, because it turns out I can't write two books in a year. I can't go from, there are people who can, there's people who are working on one project in the morning and a different project in the evening. I can't, I am linear. I can work on one book until it's done. And then I can work on the next book. So I could not, and I missed my deadline. And by the way, the pandemic had started too. And and there was depression and, and the stuff that hit all of us in 2020, as I was trying to write these books. And so I was four months late on the way to command. Um, and I'm really happy with how it came out. And I'm really, really happy that I took those four months instead of jamming it in. What I've learned about myself is to not overcommit to doing more than one book. On the, on the subject of how publishers respond to, uh, you know, date changes and, and whatever else, I've, I've had the same experience, right? And it, it sounds like Sunyi has gone past at least one date and nobody's even mentioned it to her. Um, my editor is very organized and keeps cl- very close track of her schedule and uh, all of the books on her schedule. But even still, and even despite all of the challenges that have come along with my publishing career so far, she and Tor have been excellent about any date changes that I've needed, uh, any extra time, uh, even if it doesn't change a delivery date, right? Any extra time I need to do edits. They even were pretty cool about uh, taking extra time and (laughs) me doing more than I was supposed to during um, copy edits uh, because I got a a little bit of a a mixed message in terms of how much I could edit. So yeah, I, I mean, if there are any authors out there floundering and not knowing how much they can or should ask for uh, and are just suffering uh, depression and whatever else comes with feeling like you're chronically disappointing your publisher, I think the answer there is definitely be open about it and uh, just just let them know you need more time because I think universally they'll be able that to. Also, it's not like they don't work with authors, right? Yeah. Like. Like they've worked with a couple of, they, have you met authors? You know, you know, there, there are whatever you think is the worst thing you could possibly do. Someone's done worse, you know? And so, so what I did actually, so I say I delivered everything on time to generate, uh, to Harper actually with generation ship, I got to my due date and I was ready to turn it in, but I had more work I wanted to do. So I just, uh, I got on the email with David, my editor, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> yeah. when are you actually going to do this? Because yeah. his schedule is his schedule, right? My schedule, I, I have a contractual due date, but he's got 20, 25 books to get out in a year, and, yeah. and he knows his schedule. And I'm like, when am I actually on your schedule? And because if you're not going to use the time, let me have it. And he's like, get it to me in you know seven weeks. Cause that's when you're, when you're on. And then we got to seven weeks and I'm like, Hey, hey give me one more week. And I, so, so I did. And, and I turned it in about eight weeks after what the contract said, but he wasn't going to work on it anyway. But at the same time, when they give me my copy edits on generation ship, um, which I'm supposed to get on the 24th. Yeah. So 10 days from when we're recording this, 
when they give those to me, I've got 14 days to get them back to them. And if I say, hey, I need a month, they're going to say, good, your book's not getting published on the date that it's supposed to get published. Because we are in a tight window with production timelines and the lags in production timing. I mean, me taking extra time on that means the book doesn't come out when it's supposed to come out. Or we don't have arcs or something that is tangibly that tangibly matters to me. Yes, they can't make me right. If I need more time, I, I, I'm going to take more time, but it is not in my best interest to take that time. Yeah. On the flip side, uh, I told my editor, I think earlier in the year that I was hoping to hand in uh, the, the ghost fucker book, which is my untitled second manuscript and i said uh, you know I'm it's, hoping titled. You had it. that's, it's titled <laughs> i i can't wait for that to come out with a title that's, that's so the cool. title uh, yeah i told her i'd hand it in i'd try and hand in you know on like the 11th of february and um she wrote back and said great you know i'll make sure i clear my schedule so i've got time for it. oh shit i better really hand it in then or i've yeah. like held See, everybody that, up that's a rookie that's a rookie <laughs> mistake right there you don't promise something that you Promise what you're going to yeah. deliver. And that, I think that's it, though. Be honest. Right. So we did actually put out a call this week where we were asking people if there were any specific questions. And we got a load back. And some of them we've tried to cover in this episode or ended up covering organically, uh, specifically talking about, you know, how to live with the reality of writing several books and how to time in what you're doing with that. Uh, but there was one particular question that I'm going to read out from an anonymous listener. How do you figure out what happened with the book's publication journey after it flops? How to do a book post-mortem? And this person also says, you know, I'm embarrassed to report. I don't know what went wrong with mine. I don't know how to go about finding out what happened. Everybody says, ask someone who might, everybody says, ask your publisher, basically. Or here are some unverifiable and equally unlikely things that might have happened. Um, or whatever happened pre-COVID doesn't matter. Everything's different now. Uh, and I, I'll let Mike get into that in a moment if he wants to and, and to take an angle on that. But I think the first thing I would always say is, you know, if your book has come out and your sales are not what you want or what your publisher hoped for, that is not your fault. Um, and I think that is always the thing I want to emphasize with people. There are so many things that need to go right for a book to take off. And if any of them go wrong at any point, then you can immediately have the result that you, you weren't hoping for. And that fundamentally, sales are not actually inside our control at all. There's so little that we can do to impact sales. Yeah, I think that's good. I don't, I don't know that there's a lot of benefit in doing a postmortem. In that one, first of all, whoever said to ask your publisher what went, what went wrong, don't. That's that's pointless because one, they're not going to tell you, and two, they don't know because if they knew, it wouldn't have happened, right? They they don't know. Your book didn't sell. Yes, they have some vague idea of what they spent on it and what they did, but if they knew how to make it successful, they would have because it's in their financial interest to do so. Why they chose to do that on someone else's book and not yours, I don't know, but they're not gonna tell you that. So don't ask your publisher, that, that's a waste of time. They're gonna give you vague publishing talk. Um, they're not gonna wanna hurt your feelings because you're a precious artist, I don't know. But, but they're not going to tell you why it went wrong. And I don't know that it, I don't know that anybody can because all the things that went right for me and, and the luck and the timing, and I hit the military sci-fi market with the right narrator and the right book at the right time that it, it did better than people expected it to do. You can't predict that. And if you can, 
you should be doing indie because you have you can get your timing right if you're indie, whereas you have no control over your timing in, in traditional publishing. Um, you know, so so it's just really, really hard to say. And it's also pointless because it's happened. If you're asking that question, then your book has already failed and there's nothing you can do about it. It's in the past and all you can do, whether you're successful or you're not successful, is start from today and figure out what are you going to do. And it might be you're gonna make a decision. Is it worth it to even keep going? Maybe you're gonna leave the business and a lot of authors do. And I'm not suggesting that you should and I'm not encouraging you to, but you know the facts now, right? If you've written one book, you've written three books, you've written 10 books, you have more information than you did before you started and you can make a new decision based on that. Every day we get up and we decide yep. if we're gonna write or we're not. And you make that, you know, we decide if we're gonna pursue something. If your book didn't do well, the standard advice is write a new book and you're gonna go back out and try again. That's hard, right? I'm not, I'm not saying to do that. But if you wanna be a writer and you wanna have a career and your first book bombed, there aren't a lot of other options other than write another book and you know and try to find another agent if you if you're not with your agent bad things happen agents drop people your agent might not jive with you on what you want to write next your publisher might not want have any interest in doing that my publisher really doesn't have any interest in any more books by me we didn't really talk about that let's talk about that even when you're successful right misfit soldier yeah. bombed okay i had already signed generationship with them so they didn't have a choice because uh, they've already signed the deal, right? And I think they're happy with it. I mean, my publisher, by all intent, you know, from everything that they've said and everything that they're doing to support this book, I think that they are doing what I need them to do to try to make this next one a success. But until it does, until it is, right now it's Schrodinger's book, right? We don't know if it's going to be a success or not. And I don't think they're going to want to do a whole lot yeah. more with me until we find out. Um, and that's okay. And I know that because I sent seven pitches to them. You know, I sent seven pitches to my editor of, hey, here's the stuff that I'd like to do next. Uh, and he said, you know, he, he was very nice about it. We have a very good relationship. I like David a lot. And it was, it was, but it might as well then, yeah, we're going to wait. I mean, he didn't say it like that, but he might as well, he might as well have just said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to wait and we'll see what happens, you know. But I kind of knew... I wasn't even sad about that because it was kind of a last ditch pitch, right? I'm going to send these in. I don't think they're going to take them, but let's see. Let's see what happens, right? You know, I have nothing to lose. It didn't cost me anything other than the time it took to write up the pitches. And I have the pitches because I want, these are all books that I want to write and would be willing to write. But if they don't want to work with me, I'm still going to write books because I still think I have things to say and I'm going to find someone to pay me to do it. And if that's an audio company, it's an audio company. Do you think that there are things that people can do uh, promotion-wise which actually make a difference for launch sales and pre-orders? And I think, I remember we were talking a little bit about this in Discord in, in regards to like making lists with reviewers and concrete things like that. And this is another one of the, the listener submitted questions I think is a good one. Um, and I might ask a social media person more on it, but I thought you might have some pretty good practical advice for that. Everything that you can, mentally, you want to come out of this believing you did everything that you could possibly do, okay? When I went on sub, everyone talks about how bad sub was. I 
was so chill on sub because I believed at that time I had written the best book I could possibly write. I believe my agent wrote the best pitch she could possibly write. And I believed we sent it to all the editors who made sense for that book. And anything else that happened was beyond my control. An editor was gonna to decide to buy it or not. And there was nothing I could do to influence that. And the same thing goes with marketing and with everything else. You can't market your own book to success. You just can't, right? That's the publisher. They can sell it. They can get you placement in bookstores that changes the way your book sells. If you listen to episode two, right, where, where they, the booksellers came on and told you where in the store, where you are in the store is the most important thing to whether you sell or not. You can't control that. Right. If you go to your local Barnes and Noble and say, please put my book in the front of this door, they're going to say that costs this month money and it comes through your publisher. They will not do it. They might have a local author's table. I mean, I've seen that occasionally, but generally speaking, those are paid spots and your publisher either paid for that spot or they did not pay for that spot. Right. Advertising. Your publisher either advertised, they went out and they sold hard to get extra copies of your book in store or they did not. And you're not really gonna know because it's all invisible. Anyone who says, my publisher didn't do any marketing for me, you don't know that. Is your book in a store? Then someone did some marketing for you because it doesn't get to store by accident. Somebody got that book into a store. It might not be the marketing you want. It's certainly not the marketing you see, but that the, nobody in the bookstore went into the 600 book book catalog and said, well, I gotta have that one without the editor doing something, right? And, if you're with the big five, you're probably going to be assigned a publicist mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you're going to be, unless you're a lead title and I'm not going to talk about lead titles. Okay. Cause lead titles, it's a different world and you need to get somebody else to talk about that. So let me just talk about what you can do as a mid list author. Okay. So you're going to be assigned a publicist. That publicist is not assigned to you. It's assigned to your book. Okay, and that publicist has, it's a, first of all, if you're a mid-lister, you're not getting a publicist, you're getting the publicist's assistant. They are probably 23, okay? It's probably their first job in the industry coming right out of college and nothing against that. Everyone starts somewhere, okay? But they are a publishing assistant. They are woefully underpaid. And if you're a publisher and you're listening to this, pay your people better and we'll get better results because they'll stay in the job. I, am, I have been through four public publicists with Harper on four books. I had two for my first two books. I had one for my first two books, uh, one for my third book, and then two for my fourth book. And I will get a new one for my fifth book at some point here in the very near future. They will assign me an assistant publicist. And that publicist will have 20 or 30 or 50, I don't know how many, a lot of books over multiple imprints, right? My publicist, when that person is assigned, will have books from William Morrow as well as Harper Voyager and maybe more. Okay, other Harper imprints, and they will have a list of things that they are going to do, and they are going to have way too much work to do, and it's not their fault. So don't yell at your underpaid publicist, but understand that they're not going to do everything you want them to do because they can't. All right. So, how do you work on that? Well, something that I kind of figured during uh, after my first book was. You know, I hold a whole bunch of people reviewed my my first book. So I kept a list of all those people. And now I hand that list to my next publicist and say, 
hey, here's all the people I would like to get my book to because they've shown love to my previous work and they are inclined by just knowing my name to maybe give this book a look. And, and so I'm going to try to get it out to reviewers. If you're a debut, that's a lot harder, right? Because you're not going to know as much stuff. But one thing you can do is figure out who reviews the kind of books that you are and then likes them. So in your head, who are your comps of, hey, if you like this reader, if you like this writer, you're going to like me. If you like this book, you're going to like my book and figure out who that is and then look at who's done positive reviews on that book and make a list and hand it to your publicist. Will they send it to those people? I don't know, but you just made it a lot easier. When you make their job easier and they can now go to their boss and say, I sent it to these 15 people who all have positive views of this part of the genre and maybe they like it. You're giving them a way to look good without having to do the work because you did the work for them. If you count on your publicist to go do everything that I just said, good luck. That's probably not gonna happen because they don't have time and that's not their fault. And you can be mad about it if you want, okay? And you maybe you are and maybe that's okay and, and maybe you should be mad that they are not doing as much as they should. That's the publicist's job. That's the publisher's job to publicize my book, okay? You know, you, you can want on one side and just face reality on another side. And the reality is the, that that publicist is going to do whatever they have to do to fulfill their job and you don't pay their check, you know? And you could be mad, you could be mad about it or you can work and do everything in your possibility. Everything and possible. If you're mid-list or even below mid-list, right, your book doesn't pay anybody's paycheck. And so, That's right. yeah, not only, you know, not only do you not matter to them on a personal level, your book isn't first on their list to do anything for. And that, that's, that's true. Yeah. And it gets worse as it goes, yeah. right? It gets, which, you know, for, for those of you who are having book two come out, um, I have some bad news for you. You're going to get less support on book two than you got on book one, right? Um, <laughs> awesome. And so because, because you're already capped. Yeah. So why, they're, they're counting on book one to sell book two. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I mean, just to echo what Sunny said earlier on, right? Like, this the formation of this group but specifically you coming in and having a lot of that earned knowledge and being willing to share that with our group was a huge turning point in maybe not my publishing career but at least how I looked at my publishing career and how I was able to cope and kind of maybe recenter or or recalibrate how I uh, am going to proceed from here thanks for that and thanks for coming on and sharing a bit of of that with everybody. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.